and want to encourage you now to say something really loud. You want me to say something really loud? Praise the Lord. Amen. And now we want to we want to draw on this encouragement even more. I want to ask you to grab your Bibles. Let's go to 2 Corinthians chapter 1 together. And as you go there, uh, just going to share a personal thought. Uh, I'm convinced. Uh, that GPS units were created by a woman for hard-headed husbands. But it's kind, of, it's kind of funny to see how they've changed over the years, right? I mean, when they first came out, they were these big units. You had the suction cup to your window. And, and if you missed a turn, what would the GPS unit say? Recalculating, right? Oh, man, it was how many times am I going to hear recalculating in one trip? Uh, but, you know, as everything else, over time, kind of changed, and now they're on our smartphones, and has anybody else noticed that Google Maps or Waze, whichever one you use, it doesn't say recalculating? It's kind of like the little voice in the unit just got tired of saying recalculating, and it was like, you know what, you're not going to listen to me anyway, so I'm just going to automatically adjust your route to get you to your destination. You know, the funny thing about it is some of you are treating life like that. You've been given the ability and you have the tool necessary to live a life that glorifies God, knows God, and reflects God. But instead of allowing him to direct and use the highlighted route, we want to do it our way. And it's because of one fundamental issue, it's really a sin, the, the scripture says of it, it's the sin of pride. It's the idea that I know better than God does uh, of what I need and where to go. But what we need to understand this morning is very simply this. God has the best plan for our lives. In fact, the, the one big thing this morning is that God has the best plan for our lives. Let's look at it together. Second Corinthians chapter 1. I'm going to start in verse 12 and ask if you would stand as we honor the reading of God's word together. It says, for our rejoicing is this, the testimony of our conscience, that in simplicity and godly sincerity, not with fleshly wisdom, but by the grace of God, we have had our conversation in the world, and more abundantly to you. For we write none other things unto you than what you read or acknowledge. And I trust you shall acknowledge even to the end. As also ye have acknowledged us in part, that we are your rejoicing, even as you also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. And in this confidence, I was minded to come unto you before, that you might have a second benefit, and to pass by you into Macedonia, and to come again out of Macedonia unto you, and of you to be brought on my way toward Judea. When I therefore was thus minded, did I use lightness? Or the things that I purpose, do I purpose according to the flesh, that with me there should be yea, yea or nay, nay? But as God is true, our word toward you was not yea and nay. Let's pray. Father, we thank you again for your word, the opportunity just to simply share what you're doing in our lives. But now, God, we, 
we turn to the study of your word. And we pray, Lord, that you would give us ears to hear and hearts to receive the truth of your word that we may obey you in all things. In Jesus' name, amen. And you may be seated. Again, the one big thing is this. God has the best plan for our lives. Now, we see two things that God does in this text. The first one is this. God changes our plans. All right? Uh, Have you ever wanted to do something, but every time you plan to do it, you get ready to do it, all of a sudden something comes up and you can't do it? Has that ever happened to anybody? This is essentially what's happening in our text to Paul. Paul, on four different occasions, wanted to come to the Corinthians, and each time God had prevented him for some reason. And this really led some false teachers in Corinth to lob two accusations at Paul. The first accusation was this, that Paul just makes his own plans on a whim. You know, he just gets up and says, you know what, I feel like doing this today. And so Paul answers that in verse 17, you know, when he says, did I use lightness his answer, of course not. I, I'm not doing this according to the flesh. I'm, I'm not making this up as I go along. Because I love God, because my life is directed by God, I'm only going to go and do what God allows me to do. So the second accusation that's lobbed at Paul was this. He was saying one thing, but it was meaning another. And Paul, again, he answers it at the end of verse 17. With me there should be, not that there should be yea, yea, or nay, nay, but as God is true, he's saying, listen, I'm telling you the truth. Paul couldn't understand, he didn't verbalize why God changed his plans. But Paul is simply acknowledging that God is in control of his life, and so he is free to change his plans anytime he wants to. We see in verse 19, Paul argues from the greater to the lesser. He says, listen, you trusted me about who God was. You trusted me with the gospel. You trusted what I taught you about how to be saved. So if you can trust me with that stuff, then why don't you trust me when I tell you my travel plans? If I wouldn't lie to you about the big stuff, why do you really think I'd lie to you about the smaller stuff? And this would really go back to something that Jesus taught us in Matthew 6. The fact that Jesus can meet our greatest need, the fact that he is the sacrifice for our sin so that we can be saved. If we can trust God to meet our biggest need, then we don't have to worry about God also meeting our need for food, shelter, and clothing. You know, the basic necessities. If God can meet the biggest need, he can certainly meet the smallest need. This is the argument that Paul is making for the Corinthians for them to trust God. Paul's not asking them to trust him. He's saying, I want you to trust that God is directing me in everything that I do, that my plans aren't my plans, they're God's plans. We'll illustrate it this way. Let's say that my family and I, we're going to take a vacation, and we're going to a place that we've never been. Now, I got a pretty good idea of where it is, but I'm not exactly sure how to get there. Now, I've got a smartphone. I've got Google Maps on my phone, but I decide, you know what? I'm just going to wing it. 
we'll just get there somehow. What would you think of that? It'd be crazy, right? Why in the world would I not avail myself of something that could honestly help me? I mean, honestly, that's a revelation of pride in me because that's saying I know better than, than GPS in that, in that instance, right? It's being irresponsible of me because it's going to take us longer to get there, so I'm less time with my family on vacation, okay? It's poorly managing my resources because... I'm going to drive longer. That's more miles on the vehicle, more wear and tear. It's going to cost more gas because I guarantee I'm going to make at least one wrong turn. It would be ridiculous. All right, let me give it to you another scenario. Let's say I punch in the exact address on Google Maps. I hit play or start, and so it starts coming through the Bluetooth speakers there. Everything's good, and every time the GPS says, in 500 feet, do whatever. I go, you know what? I don't feel like it. I'm going to go my way. That'd be nuts. Again, my pride is getting in the way of availing myself of a resource that is designed to make things better, to get me there in the shortest amount of time in the safest route. Too many Christians are doing the exact same thing in their life. They're saying, I don't know what the will of God is for my life while the word of God stays closed on their nightstand. Church, I want you to know, every time we open the Bible, we are reading the mind, the heart, and the will of God. The Bible is God's word to us about himself, about us, about how to live a life that glorifies him and shows him to other people. So if we want to know what God wants from us and for us, we need to spend time in the Word of God. And we have to understand that even though I plan, God may change things. But I can trust Him to save my soul so I can trust Him with the plans for my life. Paul was calling the Corinthian believers then and us today to understand the words of Solomon in Proverbs 16 and verse 9 when he says, The heart of man plans his way, but the Lord establishes or he he directs our steps. It's okay to make plans. We've already talked about there are planners in here, then there are planners of planners in here. Making plans is good. But there should be two things that we understand about plans. Number one, my plans should only come after I've spent time in prayer. Because God knows the end from the beginning, because he knows what he wants for me and what's best, I want the plans that are made to be his plans. So I need to spend time in praying before I start planning. See, we reverse that order a lot of times. We make plans and then we pray. And when we do that, what we're asking God to do is not for us to do his will, but rather we're asking God to bless our plans. Okay, so the prayer comes first before the planning. But even as we lay out the plans, we do so holding it very loosely in our hand, knowing that in his sovereignty, God at any moment could change plans. He could change course on us, and it would be for his glory and our good. You think about, let's use the GPS illustration again. If you use Waze or Google Maps, you know that 
it can see not just the 15 miles that you're traveling then, but it's seeing 50, 60, 100 miles ahead. And if it detects a crash or a slowdown, it, it may come on and go, we have found a faster route to your destination because of heavy traffic or an accident. Do you want to reroute? So then you have a choice. I could hit yes or say yes, or you can go, no, I think I'm going to do it my way. Okay, in this instance, what we understand is God seeing the end from the beginning, he knows not just what's in front of us, but what's coming down the road that you and I do not see right now. And so as we pray and ask God to establish our plans, we are asking him to do not only what's in our best interest now, but what he knows to be in our best interest down the road. What is going to strengthen my faith in you the most? What is going to draw me the closest to you? What is going to help me tell others about you and in the end, have me in your presence? This is what we're asking God to do as we plan things out and we pray about them. But again, we often try to make plans based on our limited knowledge of the present. When what's called for is what the Bible calls prudence. Okay, that only comes from a spirit-given wisdom. And prudence says, if I do this today, what is going to be the outcome, not only tomorrow, but a week, a month, a year from now? This is what James gets at in James chapter 4 when he says, Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. For what is your life? It is but a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. What you ought to say is, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. Now that's not a magic phrase that you have to go, if the Lord allows uh, everything that you do. Rather, it's an internal recognition that it is God who is in control. It is God who is directing all of my steps. And so, if I understand God's will for me, this is what I'm going to do. But Lord, you are in control. So if I'm wrong, recalculate me. Adjust my course to put me where you want me, not where I want myself. And so Paul, Solomon, and James are all telling us the same thing, that we need to learn to trust the Lord with our life. Again, if you can trust him to save your soul from sin, then why do you honestly feel like you cannot trust him with the decisions of your life? He either knows it all or he doesn't. But not only does God change our plans, but we also need to know that God desires to change us. And this is the second thing we see God do in the text. And it's verse 23 through uh, chapter 2, verse 4. And it's this, that God corrects those he loves. See, God's goal is to make us holy as he is holy. It is, he is predestined or predetermined to conform us to the image of Jesus. So why did God changed Paul's plans because he was going to continue the transformation in the Corinthians' lives. See, Paul had already had a painful visit to Corinth. 
He had already written a painful letter to the Corinthians. We call it 1 Corinthians. All right, there were a lot of people who were hurt and was causing issues there based on what Paul had written in 1 Corinthians. Uh, I mean, after all, the church at Corinth was probably the most messed up church in all the New Testament. I would argue it was more messed up than the Laodicean church in Revelation 3. And so Paul didn't pull any punches. He was telling them the truth. And some of the false teachers were using Paul's tough words to go, see, Paul doesn't love you. He's just a big, bad bully. He's a mean guy. Paul is arguing, going, listen, these false teachers, they're telling you what you want to hear. I'm telling you what God says you need to hear. We have to learn to trust what God says in our lives and the fact that he uses other people to share the truth with us. We see it, Proverbs chapter 27 and verse 6. Solomon says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend, but profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Just kind of a rule of thumb, be very leery of anybody who always says nothing but how great you are. You know, Charles Spurgeon was asked one time about people who were saying negative things about him. His response were, it doesn't bother me because if they knew who I really was, they would say much worse about me. Think about it. People will say all sorts of things to us. But God knows the real us. And he reveals his love for us in sharing the truth. There's never a time in in which we should not share the truth, but how we share it is very, very important. See, Ephesians 4 verse 15 says that we are to speak the truth in love. So it's not only that we're saying the right thing, but we're saying it in the right way. Paul knew, or, or Paul didn't understand, but God knew if Paul goes to Corinth right now and he begins to teach and to continue to try to correct the problems in this church, they were going to be resistant because they didn't want to hear the truth. It was easier for them to believe the lies than to accept one truth. And that is one of my greatest fears for the American church right now is we want to heap up teachers that tell us what we want to hear when God is trying to speak his truth to us. Satan is a deceiver and he is really good at his job. We're going to get to it a month and a half or so maybe. But Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11 that Satan comes as an angel of light. We need to understand and evaluate everything we hear, not based on how does it make me feel, but what does God's word say? What's the truth? See, God changes or he corrects the course of our life Because he knows what's best for us. I want you to think, you know, parents, you're going to be able to understand this. I remember when when I was growing up, I would do some things that I probably shouldn't have done, and I would get in trouble for them. Now, full disclosure, I probably deserved a whole lot more whippings than I ever got. 
okay? But I remember every time that, that it was that time, okay, I, I would hear this statement. This is going to hurt me more than it hurt you. Now, for one of the few times in my life, God made sure I kept my mouth closed. But in my mind, I'm going, how do you figure that? Which one of us is about to have their backside stinging so much it hurts to sit down? How exactly is this going to hurt you? Well, guess what? As, as I become a father and had to discipline my children, I get it. I don't want to cause them pain. I, I want to encourage them, and I, I want to tell them, you can be anything you want to be, and, and, you know, all the other lies that parents tell. That's another sermon for another Sunday. I'm going to keep going, okay? We, we want to do those good things for them. But why do we discipline our children? Well, listen to what Scripture says, Proverbs 3. My son, do not despise the discipline of the Lord. For whom the Lord loves, he corrects, even in the son in whom the father delights. God disciplines us because he loves us. Because he wants what's best for us. We as parents, we discipline our children because we want them to be who they're created to be. If we were to flip over to the New Testament and read the book of Hebrews, we would see this. The writer would say, not only does God discipline those that he loves, but if you can sin and you do not feel the conviction over sin, it's because you do not belong to God. So really, when we talk about examining our life, which is this whole series, examining our life and our faith, we need to look and see, how does God deal with our sin? Do I feel conviction? Do I feel God's discipline in my life? Or is God basically let me do whatever I want? Now, if I'm able to do something, I'm not feeling conviction over it. There's only two possibilities. Number one, my heart has become so hardened to that sin that I don't hear God's voice. In that instance, you're saved but you're certainly living in disobedience. The other scenario is this. If I'm living in sin and I'm not feeling conviction, it's because the Holy Spirit is saying, you're not one of mine. And that's a greater cause of concern because we're lost in our sin. And this has to be dealt with immediately. So, again, we need to honestly assess how does God deal with in my sin. The fact that we're sinners, I hope that's not up for debate. All right? Scripture's abundantly clear. For all of sin to come short of the glory of God. All right? Whether you are saved or not, there's still sin. But how does God deal with us in that? So what do we do with this text? How can we practically apply it? Well, I want to give you two quick things. First off, we need to live with integrity. Church, if I, could, if I could stress anything this morning, it would probably be this. Our walk must match our talk. Now, in society, we have, man, we have managed to master a masquerade. What I mean by that is we carefully cultivate a picture that we want people to think about us. The way we, we do things and talk, we, we're very careful to craft a, an image for somebody to believe about us. And that's an issue all of its own. 
But there's one area in life that we are not doing it, and it's really revealing the truth of our hearts, and it's on social media. One of the greatest places that the church of Jesus Christ is harming their testimony to the lost is social media. Because in one post, it's Bible verses and God love you and God's so good to me. And then the next, you are tearing down those created in the image of God. You're posting things that are vulgar and absolutely scripturally wrong. And people are watching. And they are going, that's a Christian? See, in do, living inconsistently, even on social media, we are not only making a fool of ourselves, but worse, we are defaming the gospel and becoming a stumbling block for the lost to come to Christ. we got to stop it. Now listen, there's stuff on social media that's funny, and it's appropriate. Post it. Have fun with it. But if you have to ask yourself, should I do this, delete it. Don't do it. Why is this such a big deal? Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew 18. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened around his neck and to be drowned in the depth of the sea. Jesus said, for you to be a stumbling block for somebody coming to Christ, it would be better for you to have a large rock fastened around your neck and be tossed in the sea. That's why it matters. People are watching, people are listening, people are reading. And so we have to make sure that we are living with integrity and that we are living a consistent life that our words are, in fact, matching what we are, how we are living. But not only do we need to live with integrity, but to really sum this whole passage up, I would say this. It's a call for us to trust God with our life. Harry and I were having uh, breakfast a couple weeks ago, and we just got into an interesting discussion, and the discussion was this. Do most people make decisions based on fear or out of faith? Now, I'm not going to speak for him. You can ask him after service. My conclusion is 90% of people make 90% of their decisions based on fear rather than a faith and a trust in God. Now, that's a pretty big number. If you'll permit me just a few moments, I'd like to try to uh, prove that that thought. I'm going to ask a question. When do most people in the United States make the most drastic changes, health-wise? Other than New Year's Eve, New Year's resolutions. Most of the time, it is after a heart attack, a stroke, or some major health crisis, right? We've gone to the doctor, blood work comes back, doctor goes, hey, you probably need to change how you live, all right? Now, here's the thing. Most Americans know that we do at least three things wrong. We don't eat right, we don't exercise enough, and we don't get enough sleep. It's not like when we walk into the doctor's office and the doctor goes, hey, Justin, you're fat. It's not like I'm like, whoa, thank you for telling me. I didn't know. I didn't have a mirror in my, office, in my house, doctor. Thank you for telling me what I didn't know, right? I mean, we know it. 
I don't do what I should do. Got it. But when we have a health scare, when something goes wrong, it becomes a motivator for us to do what we know in our minds we should have done a long time ago. Let me give you another one. Let's talk about surrendering our life to, to Christ. If you grew up in church, most likely you grew up hearing sermons on sin, death, and hell. And most likely they went in one ear and out the other. Why? You were young, you were healthy. Death was for those old people. And now as the years have begun to stack on top of themselves, and you read the obituaries, which is a very morbid practice, by the way, but as you read the obituaries and you see that the ages of the people who died are really, really close to your age, now when you go to church and you hear sermons on sin, death, and hell, they become a little more um, important to you. Did the reality of hell change? No. What changed? Your understanding of your own mortality. The fact that I, am, I have more life behind me than I do in front of me. Don't get me wrong. Fear can be cathartic. It can spark change. But any change that fear produces is temporary at best. At best. Allow me one more illustration. Tuesday, September 11th, 2001. The worst terrorist attack ever perpetrated on American soil occurred. Five days later, churches had more people in attendance. There was more conversations about the Bible and salvation and things like that for a period of about three months. After six months, everything went back to the same old, same old. Why? Because for the previous six months, people were afraid for the first time ever they might actually be the victim of a terrorist attack. I might die if I go and do this. However, six months removed from it, that thought has now left their mind and they've settled back into a routine. See, the, tr the call to trust God with your life isn't because you are afraid of hell. The call to trust God with your life is based on the love of God that sent the Son of God to this earth to die in your place when you didn't think anything about him, when you didn't love him, when you didn't care. The love of God was so powerful that it sent the Son of God to die in our place. If you want that lasting change and transformation, decisions have to be based on that, not what could happen and fear. We, we love because we have been loved. We, we sit down and we understand how can somebody love me so much as to die in my place to, to pay a debt I owed. And we determine that I don't want to live another moment without that love in my life. This is the motivation that affects transformation. So that's the call. That if you are here and you have never surrendered to Christ, yes, hell is a reality. 
You cannot get away from it from Genesis to Revelation. It is what we all deserve. But in his love, God sent his son to take our place, to exchange our sin for his right standing with God. That our past, present, and future sins have been paid for and removed from us by the blood of Jesus Christ. If you never surrendered to Christ, I want to encourage you, today's that day. Not to go another day without it. But there's a, there's a second call. And this is to my brothers and my sisters in Christ. And it's also to us as a church. To no longer make decisions based on thoughts and intentions or about some crazy fear of what might happen. But rather, by faith, get on our face, pleading with God, saying, I'm your child, we are your church, lead us. Even if I don't understand where you're taking us, even if I don't understand what all this is going to mean, because I trust you, I'm going to follow. See, sometimes following God means you're not going to see the whole path. And when you cannot see the hand of God, we have to trust the character of God. He's good. He's loving. He's gracious. He's merciful. His plans are to draw us to Him, not away from Him. So this is the call, to trust him not only with your heart as Savior, but if he's your Savior, Scripture also commands he's your Lord, which means I relinquish all control over my life. All decisions are not mine. They're to be his. Have you done it? Will you do it? Will we do it? Would you stand with me as we're going to pray? Father God, as we continue to move in, in this worship service, we thank you for the opportunity just to, to study your word. But Lord, the call is, is very simple and it's very important in our lives right now. The most important decision anyone can ever be a part of is surrendering to the grace of God. Your word says that we're all sinners, and because of that, the wages of sin is death. It's what we deserve. And Lord, the, the world says that all roads lead to the same place, where in the end we'll all go to heaven. But your word says something entirely different. Your word says that there's not a single work that we can do that would override our sinfulness and our rejection of you. That if we're saved, it's by your grace. And even the faith to trust you is a gift. And so, Lord, I pray for those who are trusting in themselves that today those scales have fallen off, the mask has been removed. For the first time, they see themselves in need of a Savior. God, we praise you that before the foundation of the world, you had a plan to send that Savior. It was your Son. 
And that is we surrender to your grace, trusting in what Jesus did on that cross. We are forgiven. Our relationship that was broken by sin has been restored. And we go from an enemy of God to a child of God. And that is something that will never be taken away from us. But Father, so often we preach and talk about trusting Jesus to save you. But we don't explain that that also means that you are our master, you are our Lord. That those who have truly trusted you surrender full control to you. So God, I just pray right now If there's any area of our life that we haven't given over to you, Lord, would you just bring it to our minds that we could confess it? That we could admit that we've been living in sin by not trusting you. But then, Lord, also asking for your help to trust you and knowing that you will. So, Lord, as you have spoken... Let us respond in Jesus' name. Amen. The altar is open. We're going to sing uh, hymn 411. Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. If you need to...